Would you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1? We're continuing through Ephesians. I'm going to go ahead and pray and we'll read and get started. But um, you'll notice that this morning in Ephesians, by God's providence, he has us in a place where he's discussing the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. <laughs> and what we realize is that none of this, none of the situations that we go through as a church, and none of the situations that you're going through in life right now are an accident. That in the foreknowledge of God, he knew all things. God is completely sovereign. And he's our father in heaven by faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to read verses 22 through 23 of Ephesians 1, but I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Our Father, we commit this time to you now. We ask, Lord, that you would please speak to our hearts, and we pray that you would not only transform our hearts, you would renew our hope, that you would also transform our homes and our communities for the glory of Jesus all along the coastlands, God. And we thank you that you've given us your word and your Holy Spirit and that Jesus, you yourself, walk in the midst of your church. You're here with us now. And in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. We ask for you to come and you to speak through your living word. Make these truths real to our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say hello to Ventura and Carpinteria. Let's give them a hand. They're... We, of course, are one church, three locations across the coastlands, and God has placed us also here in Santa Barbara on commun- in community and a part of his mission. Um, start with verse 22. And God has put all things under his Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, The fullness of him who fills all in all. Last week I spoke um, at Reality LA. And um, in between services, it was a great time. In between services there came up uh, a young guy that I hadn't seen in probably three years or so. Uh, We had done ministry together. He's a friend of mine and I hadn't seen him in quite some time. And he told me, that that was the first day that he had actually been to church in about as many years, about actually two years. Um, The reason being is because of struggles that he was facing in his own faith and and sin that that caused him to step away from ministry and really become burnt out with uh, the church as a whole. And when he left, he left not amicably, um, there were some hard issues that were there. And I was, uh, I was looking in his face. I could see just there was now a settledness, but there was a lot of pain that had taken place. When he left ministry, he went to um, a church where he had been around for that church for, for, for years when he was a kid. And now he returned there, hoping to find the vestiges of his faith as when he was a child. And while he was there, the pastor uh, had an adulterous affair with another woman in the church. Broke the church apart. Broke his heart. 
And he felt, wow, what's, what's the use? This is crazy. So he stopped going to church, which, you know, further this whole situation, as you can imagine, perpetuated the whole the pain and the hurt that he had felt from his own Uh, from his own mistakes and failures, and now seeing the failures within the church, he said, what's the use? A couple of years went by, and he was invited to a a small group, a home group. And in the home group, the leader of this community group was having sexual relationships with another woman. He was involved in sexual sin with a girl in the group. Split the group. And he thought to himself, I'm done. I'm over this. And when I saw him walk up, I was, I was really excited to see him, but he told me, this is the first time I've been to church in probably a couple of years. And um, I wasn't going to come today. What do you tell him? Cheer up. I really didn't know what to say. We just prayed and we talked and and it became real to me, as sometimes it really does. It was really heavy on my own heart because I, I knew the people that he was talking about somewhat, um, knew of them, the pastor and not so much the community group leader. But it was a heaviness on my own heart of the whole idea that in church there's woundedness, there's deep pain and hurt. And some of you here this morning, you've experienced wounds, pain, hurt, maybe from the hands of other people, or maybe you've hurt other people, and you feel this morning, what's the use? Why bother? Um, In the April article of Newsweek, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, they ran a cover by uh, a, a blogger from Daily Beast known as Andrew Sullivan, and it almost perfectly expresses the sentiments of a lot of people, because in the article he puts... Inside, the, the title is Christianity in Crises. Christianity has been destroyed by politics, priests, and get-rich evangelists. And who among us, if, when reading that, wouldn't say, yeah, exactly, I know. And then he offers this advice of how to deal with it. He says, the subtitle, ignore them. And all of us would say, I wish I could. I want to. And in the front cover, it expresses what many people want to do. And the cover reads, if you have a picture of it too, forget the church, follow Jesus. The cover of Newsweek magazine. And Sullivan's piece is an angry rant, obviously. Inside, there's, there's full of overstatements and misstatements and misunderstandings. But that's kind of what makes the nature of rants fun to read sometimes. You read it and you want to see, what is this person saying? What's the root issue? What's the cause of why they're saying it? And for Sullivan, he pines for Christianity to correct itself in a few ways. Particularly one, that Christianity would rid itself and shake off shackles of political uh, uh, manipulation and partisanship. Also, that it would rid itself of abstract theology and doctrine. We just want to follow Jesus and love him. And then lastly and thirdly, what we're really going to focus on today, he hopes that Christianity would rid itself of the institutional church. And for him, he hopes that this would be one that would shed all vestiges of institutional church and instead give itself to living, quote, the simple ethics of Jesus. And all through the article... 
It's all about just living a life of simple faith in Jesus. Not dealing with doctrine and not dealing with the church. For the sake of time, I can't go into all of that. I can't really deal with the uh, elements of political uh, manipulation, although all of us in here would be tired of that as well. We would say, yes, we don't like to see political manipulation with the uses of religion. And for time's sake, I really can't go into all of the theological missteps and misunderstandings that are in the article, only to say that, you know, if you ever read the Bible, Jesus' theology and his ethics are far from anything but simple. I mean, Jesus at times, he declares himself to be on par with God over and over again, with the Jewish God. He says, I and the Father, I and God are one. Before time happened, I created everything. I was there. Jesus' theology is not anything simple. He claims himself to be God, the God who forgives sins, the God who sacrificially atones his life for all of humanity. And his ethics aren't simple either. And you see that all throughout the church. And through this article, when he, when he writes, he says, it's doctrine that divides things. Well, Jesus' doctrine, it divides. And Jesus' ethics, particularly, of, are, are the image of God. We've been created in God's image. Therefore, our sexuality belongs to God. And we should, we were designed, our sexuality was designed by God and was meant to be enjoyed in certain ways. Our community was designed by God, a desire for relationship, to be in relationship the way that God designed us. And so, of course, there's going to be a divide when doctrine enters. But I want to focus Mostly, not on those other two elements of the article, but lastly, on the idea of the church. And here's the, here's the real difficulty with it, is that the church is a big deal to God. When you read throughout Scripture, you read that Jesus is actually really into the church. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. That's how I'm going to spread the message of the good news of what I've come to do for humanity. I'm going to build a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Sullivan has pretty much given up on institutional church and on the religion called Christianity. He's convinced that, quote, organized religion itself is in trouble and that Christianity is in crisis. That's why, hence, the cover says, forget church, follow Jesus. But can you do that? Is it enough to simply say, I love the Lord, I'm not so crazy about the church? Though many of us feel that way at times. I heard a, a story of a man who had been cast away at sea for some 20 years. And his rescuer, when he came to him, he saw him and he says, he was blown away by this man and how he had built these structures in the rocks along the seacoast. And the man said, what is that amazing building right there? And he said, that's my home. I built it. I've been here stranded for 20 years. I built that home by myself. And he says, well, what's that building right there? The amazing edifice that I see right there. He says, that is my church. And he, the rescuer said to him, so what's the building over there with the bell tower? That's beautiful. He said, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) 
And it expresses the sentiments that most of us feel about church. So what is this thing called the church? Why is it such a big deal to God? And for Sullivan, he thinks that it's so obvious it's almost taboo. But maybe he needs to hang around Christians a little bit longer to realize that it's hardly taboo in our neck of the woods, in the Protestant neck of the woods. Why? For years now, it's been common knowledge that many of the younger generations have given up on the church. Study after study, men like David Kinnaman, who wrote the book Unchristian, have shown that the typical view of the church is that it's anti-homosexual, judgmental, not loving, doesn't care about poor. And although some of it, a lot of what happens in media is an exaggeration and even a misunderstanding, it's clear that a lot of people are frustrated with the church. And in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, when he's been praying for power for their life, do you know what he includes there in verse 22? He says, and in this age and also in age to come, Jesus Christ has had all things put under his feet and God his Father has given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. It's a big deal to him. Why? I would say, before we answer the question why, that a relationship with Jesus, apart from his church, is an extremely unhealthy one. A relationship with Jesus, apart from his church, is an extremely unhealthy one. Please note, I didn't say a relationship with this church is an unhealthy, apart from this church is an unhealthy one. This church is just one small expression of the broader body of Christ universal. The church is global, which is fascinating in its history, that just with less than a couple of hundred men, particularly with under the leadership of 12, when Jesus rose from the grave, he left them in charge. And if you would have seen them, you'd have said, no way, I'm leaving my children with these men, let alone my, my church. They're fighting and they can't even figure it out. But because Jesus would build his church, the gates of hell wouldn't prevail. And yet that church, 2,000 years later, has grown to a few billion people across the globe. Why? Well, some would say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I love him in my, my own particular the only way that I choose, the only way that I do. But can you say, I have a relationship with my friend? In other words, could you say, I really like Al. I think he's a great guy. And you'd have no reason not to think that, by the way. (laughs) But if you said, I really like Al. I think he's a great guy. But I can't stand it when he walks in the room. It wouldn't make sense. The moment I see his body, it disgusts me. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. And what the Bible teaches is that a relationship apart with Jesus, apart from his church, is an extremely unhealthy one. He uses that metaphor of a body. He uses the metaphor of a bride. Now, in the same way, 
um, if we sat down together and we're having lunch and, and, and you said to me, you know, I just want to tell you, which it would creep me out if you told me this probably, but it, let's say you told me, I just want to tell you, as a friend, I really like you. That would creep me out by itself. But if you said, but I can't stand your wife. The friendship is pretty much over. The lunch is done. You're picking up the tab for sure. Why is the body metaphor so unique? I'm thinking of a few reasons. Number one, a healthy body requires care. A healthy body, even if it's healthy, is still fragile. And here's the deal. When you get a group of people together for any particular reason, whether it's for social justice reasons to uh, create reading programs or get computers for kids in school or tutoring programs, whatever you might have, what you'll also get an event as a result eventually is bureaucracy, pettiness, backstabbing, legalism, greed, dishonesty, conformism, self-interest, and that's on the good days. And when you throw in the idea that we have a, a nature that's tended towards self-interest, and what's in it for me, and particularly within the church, what you're going to realize is all of those things are still alive even when we get together as a church. And of course the church, historically in Roman times and up till this time, is responsible for creating universities, has built hospitals, contributed for social welfare, and helping the poor and needy. It's a place where many find healing and hope and forgiveness of sin. But take, even for instance, the church called Reality which is known for good Bible teaching. You're thinking, not today. Which is known for good Bible teaching, which is known for uh, a worship of Jesus that's very engaging. But you know what you're going to have eventually? (laughs) The longer that you're here, what you're going to realize is that you'll see, even in leadership, a tendency towards self-righteousness, at times where members are hurt and hurt one another, where insecurity manifests itself, maybe sometimes the poor are even neglected. And I'm speaking only of my particular sin. Why? Is the church in crisis? Yes. Yes. It's always been in crises. That's why we need a hero. That's why we need a head of the church. That's why it's good news when it says all things are put under the feet of Christ. Take, for instance, when the church first began just a few years after the resurrection of Christ in Corinth, for instance. There was factions and divisiveness and vicious behavior towards one another. When they gathered together, they were, they were uh, men gathered to uh, have you know, a potluck and, and they were fighting each other, cutting in line, getting drunk, all sorts of things at the Lord's table. There was even a man who was committing adultery with his father's wife. And they were actually praising this man and saying, wow, we are so anti-church. We're so anti-religious. 
Paul says, how dare you take the grace of God and trample on it? It was in trouble. You, take, you move along even into the 4th century church where nominalism first became a problem and the emperor Constantine quote, be, supposedly becomes a Christian and anyone who wants to get on his good side and pass laws and agendas has to become a Christian or profess Christianity in order to do so. You continue to move through the Middle Ages when Christian thought, is, uh, thought killing one another is uh, chivalry and there were duels that were you know, I mean, as popular as playing angry birds on your phone. You see it in the medieval papacy where uh, there's immoral practice. You see it in the 19th century where American Protestantism is promoting slavery. Is the church in trouble? And is it in crises? Yes. And that's why Jesus comes. You know, you think about a, a company like Apple. And they take any product that they're going to release has carefully gone through product development. They've carefully managed the marketing, the branding, the packaging. Like, even when you open up, Britt says, he he says it all the time, I just like opening up the box when I first see a computer. When it first comes through, you just open the box and it's like, I mean, the perfect wrapping, magical wrapping. I don't, North Pole wrapping. And you open the box, you open the computer, Everything feel, feels tight and nice and clean and good. They're not going to release a product that they haven't carefully marketed, managed, and produced. And yet Jesus Christ attaches his name to the church full of hucksters and people that fail and people that stab one another in the back and talk about people and fail. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Jesus Christ is the one who has come to redeem the church. He creates the church and puts his brand on it and calls it the church of Jesus Christ. And yet this institution, time after time, age after age, fails to exhibit his character in a consistent way. And yet he never takes his brand off it. He always says, they're mine. They're mine. They're mine. I've come to redeem them. And what you realize is the body of Christ is made of redeemed, repentant sinners. That from the ages, during first creation, it was God's desire to create a people, not just uh, individuals, saved individuals, but a community where we would see the way that we live out our lives is a reflection of the image of God. The way that we treat our sexuality is a reflection of the image of God. The way that we spend our money is a reflection of the image of God. Our community, relationships, the way that you date, the way that you work is all a reflection of the image of God. And that's who Jesus has come to redeem and say, my church, my body. So a church is made up of a body. And that body requires care. Secondly, a a body needs certain disciplines. And in the New Testament, here's what you see a church being. And here's why it's not enough to say a couple of my friends and I, we get together at Starbucks or the, you know, French press and we talk about Jesus. That's not necessarily church. That is the church gathering together, but it's not necessarily the church as Jesus Christ has built it. Why? In a body, there's certain disciplines. You need to eat, sleep, I can't think of anything else other than eating and sleeping, but 
maybe breathing. And in the New Testament, you get a good sense that the church looks a little bit different in Acts than it does in Corinth and it does in, in Timothy's day. But the teaching is the same. There's praying. There's worshiping. The sacraments and ordinances are not optional. Now, to our 21st century minds and sensibilities, the ideas of taking communion may seem a bit odd. But in the New Testament, the church was to come together on the first day of the week together and worship Christ. And sometimes it would feel like, why are we doing this again? Why are we getting together again? But do you know why? Because when the church gathers, here's what it is. It's covenant renewal. It's coming together and saying, I receive and I remember the covenant that God has made with me, with his church, that he gives himself for his bride and washes her in the water of the word so that she could be without blemish. It's covenant renewal and it's me renewing the covenant and saying, I want my life. I want to live in the image of God as an image bearer of him. And that's why we take communion. That's why we sing songs of worship as the church was called to do. See, the sacraments are supposed to be taken together as the church. That's one of the reasons, one of the disciplines that the church is supposed to do as she comes together. The bread and the wine told his disciples that this body of Christ was broken and shed for him. The fact that we would come together and do that, that there would be baptism, that we would come together and have covenant renewal. Also, in these disciplines, we need the regular rhythm of public worship, both in large gatherings and small gatherings, gathering together like this and gathering together in community where we can confess sin to one another. That's a part of worship. Where we can break bread together and eat. That's a part of worship. Where we can work to the glory of God together. D.G. Hart, one author says that being assured weekly that your sins are forgiven is a great comfort. He suggests that anything less is too trivial to sustain us through the great crises of life. That we come together and we see God is in control even in my crises. The author of Hebrews said, let us consider how we might spur one another towards love and good deeds. How do we stir one another up towards love How do we speak of covenant renewal that God has made a covenant with us and the grace of God, glory of God, unless we come together first day of the week is when they did in the book of Acts. They would do it in large gatherings and corporate gatherings. And the author continues to say, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another while it's still called today. Encouragement needs a face and it's called the body of Christ and it's a big deal to Jesus. Paul doesn't allow any vague representation of this. You don't see it in the New Testament where he, he doesn't um, mix his words. It's very necessary that they come together, that they worship Jesus together. And when we tell people, you can find Christ and have a personal relationship with him and seek him how you want to, we do a great disservice. Do you know why? Because a relationship with Jesus apart from his church is an unhealthy one. Because Paul tells these people, for instance, when he arrives in the city, he doesn't just say, find a local congregation. If it doesn't fit your taste or your liking, I mean, you can simply stay away. You don't have to be a part of it. 
For Paul, a Christian without his church was as unthinkable as a human being without a body. People need people to gather together. And here's the third part. A body needs different parts. Now listen to what C.S. Lewis said. This is amazing to me that God has placed us and given us this desire for for relationship and community. In his book called The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says, In each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald. Ronald is J.R. Tolkien, by the way. How cool is that? I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. I don't know what a Caroline joke is, but it sounds interesting. And far from having, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now, when my friend Charles died, um, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth. If only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend, they can then say, as the blessed, soul, blessed souls say in Dante, here comes one who will augment our loves. We possess each friend, not uh, we possess each friend, not less, but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. So the more we have, share this friend, it increases. We see a different side of him. Listen to this. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself. Where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has in God. For every soul seeing him in her own way Doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying out, Holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have of him. In other words, in heaven, what you're going to realize is that each person that God has created in his image cries out a different element aspect to the beauty of God and that's the importance of the church Paul says is that a body needs its different members because you see a side when we get together and we have lunch and when I sit down for instance at the men's retreat and I sat down and I I talked to the men who I typically you know don't see throughout the week and and it was great to see friends that I haven't seen in ages and we sit down and they tell me about their life and God speaks to me through the very things that they're going through. Why? Because it's the body of Christ. It's the church, and it's a big deal to God. And lastly, a body, a healthy body, is complex. It requires structures. That's why it says in verse 22, he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. He gave Jesus as the head put all things under his feet and were his body. And in the church, there is structure. In your body, as simple and organic as it might be, those cells, like, they're meant to do what they do. Did you know that? Like, there's certain things in your body, it functions the way it does. When you scrape yourself and you, you know, you replace cells and you replace tissue, that doesn't just magically happen. There's actually, like, things that are pretty magically going on in your body. It's all structured. And though it's organic in its nature, underneath it's very complex. 
And in modern days, it's very fashionable, even quite cool to say, I don't, dude, authority? Come on. But Jesus is placed here as the head, the source. And it's not so much speaking as the physical head. It's speaking in the original language as the source that the whole body of water or the army that's there or your particular body gets its, its, its source of life from. It's in charge. He's the head. He's the general. He's the captain of your salvation. And in the church, he's meant to be the senior pastor. And that's why Pastor Britt said, Jesus is our senior pastor. And why we should not fear in this present season that we're in, because he's still leading us. He's still enthroned, and the body is still a big deal to him. It's easy to become disenfranchised. Why? Because... When we gather together, what do we see? We see wounds. We see drama, difficulty, pain. But do you know that Jesus himself left heaven and it's called the incarnation and he came into our world and he lived amongst people like you and I dealing with drama, pain, changing the diapers of whining friends over and over like you and me. And he's in the midst of the church, and he's leading it. A body requires structure, leadership. And not only is Jesus placed as head, the New Testament says that the way that a church was to be organized was that men should be placed in roles of elder to lead, to wrestle through issues, to talk about it, to pray, to read the scriptures, and to say, God, how would you have us to lead your church? As elders in reality, this is what we do. We oftentimes get together. Last week when we got together, when Pastor Britt shared with us about, um, just updated us with Daisy. We got together and we talked, we prayed. Lord, what do you have us to do? About several things. How do we follow you, Jesus? You're the senior pastor. We got together and we wept we cried. It was super emo. <laughs> That's why Pastor G opened up by saying, I realize now it's okay for grown men to cry. I've known that for quite a while. <laughs> Jesus is the senior leader. We follow him. And he raises up deacons and men and women to serve the needs of the body. And all parts of the body are necessary. All parts are needed. And we should not pit structure against spirit. We should not pit uh, uh, the spirit movement against, uh, uh, or our structure against spirit-led spontaneity. Why? Because they work hand in hand. The essence of what we're to do is praise and enjoy Jesus together so that others can do the same. And all of that requires structure at times. It requires that we sit down and pray and ask Jesus, how are you leading? But I've been wounded, you say. And it happens a lot where people in the church become disappointed. 
And sometimes the crises, you know, to some of us can seem petty, but a lot of times it's very real. It's very real and very painful what people go through. And in Paul's day, whether it was the, the man sleeping with, you know, his father-in-law's wife or his dad's wife or the people that were, you know, having crazy behaviors within the church. In Paul's day, Paul's perspective is that in all of those trials, in all of these seeming deaths, Jesus brings resurrection. That Jesus is often closest through times of pain and hardship. And as we gather together and we don't forsake the assembling of the brothers. And that sometimes we need to step outside of our current context and say, I need believers to speak into my life. Would you speak the gospel into my life? We need that from one another. Because in our troubles, we experience God actually comforting us. And when we're broken and weak, the treasure that we carry becomes more apparent. And the sorrow brings repentance. And the loneliness brings closeness to Jesus. And Paul never says, now it's time to, now it's time to flee the church. He always says, draw near to Christ. He'll draw near to you. Gather together. Pray for one another. And next you'll see that not only the church reflect Jesus himself as his body, the church reflects what Jesus has done. Not just who he is, it also shows us what he's done. And because it says you are the body of Christ, here's the good news. Is that you that have trusted in Christ, you're in Christ. Listen, look up here please. What's true of Jesus is now true of you. And God says to you, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Because you're in Christ. The body of Christ consumes you. You're in him. You're joined to him. You're united with him. And Jesus is now your covering, your shield. He's, he's the body. He's the head And what this speaks of theologically is that when Adam sinned against God in the garden, and when the serpent of old lied to Adam and said, you can be your own hero, you can be the head, and Adam believed it and rebelled against God, and sin and death entered the world, as we read in Romans chapter 5. It then says, through one man sin entered the world. He's the federal head, like a father represents his family. In Eastern cultures, it would be more uh, apparent. The father would represent the family. He'd be the head of the family. And whatever he does, you know, that's how we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, For a general, the general represents the country, and his victory represents the victory of the nation. Adam sinned, and all of humanity is thus condemned to death and hell and sin. Jesus enters the world, and Romans 5 says, Through one man death entered Adam. Jesus is the second man, and through him life spread through all men that would call upon him. He's the new head, the new federal head. And Jesus is not only the head and our senior pastor, we're a part of him. He's the, we're united with him as the body of Christ. So how do we... How do we enter into this story that he's doing 
this restoration story that he's began 2,000 years ago with a handful of men empowered by the Spirit of God through hardship and failure, and now it's continuing through the year 2012. How do you enter into this story today, this week? These metaphors speak to you. The metaphor of a body. Also the metaphor of the church being a city. Jesus said, not only in Matthew chapter 5 did he say, I'm going to, you'll be a, a fellowship on a hill that all people would see. He said, I'll make you a city set on a hill. That as people look at your lives, at the way that you interact with each other, that you even sin against one another, that you repent to God and to one another, you'll be a city, a counterculture that people will say, why do they do it differently? How does that work? How do you enter into that? How, what motivates that? You need to see Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, it says, Now, in putting everything in subjection subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. We still see suffering. We still see chaos. We still see pain. But we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels when he came into this world, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he's not ashamed to call you his brothers. God made him perfected through suffering. Jesus knows what suffering's about. He enters into your suffering. And when you see him on the cross, when we see him on the cross, there, the head, having crowns of thorns uh, pressed down into his skull, bleeding from his face, for the joy set before him, he endures the shame so that he could create a body, so that he can have a people. When you see Jesus on the cross, his feet, we don't see all things under his feet, but we see Jesus. We see those feet nailed, pierced to wood for your sake and mine, for all of your shame, your mistakes, the backbiting, the slander that we've experienced from others and that we ourselves have done. It's washed by the head that blood trickles down and the feet that has nails pierced into it. The power that overcomes all relationships The power that strengthens a body, that strengthens a people, that strengthens the church, is sacrificial love. It unleashes the power in that relationship. You know this to be true. Husbands, wives, fathers, mothers. That when you sacrifice yourself for the well-being of another, it unleashes a power in that relationship. That when we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the body of Christ, it releases a power. We can only do that as if we see Jesus himself having his head crushed for you and his feet bruised as it was prophesied in the garden. Peter, when he cuts off the centurion's ear in the garden right before the cross, what does Jesus say? Put away your sword, Peter. 
I can call down 12 legions of angels right now. Who has that kind of power? Who has that kind of juice? You don't. I don't. No hero that we've ever known has. The true hero comes and he says, I've got power, but I'm laying it down for you. And power is released in his church through sacrificial love. And it means the church, as we lead out of our brokenness and our love for our enemies and even our friends, will live out the story of Jesus. Give yourself to sacrificial love. Give yourself to the sacrificial love of the body of Christ. It's a big deal to him. Give yourself in sacrificial love in your relationships. And the way that you do that is you see him giving himself in sacrificial love for you over and over. And Jesus, we praise you for your sacrificial love and we glorify you. And we say together as the body of Christ, we want to worship you, glorify you, and we pray this all, Lord, in Jesus' name. And this morning, if we come and celebrate Christ's sacrifice for us together as a body, through his body broken for us, the bread, and the symbol of his blood shed for us, the juice. Come forward and worship. You can do so on your face, standing where you are, prayer team on both sides. Let's worship and glorify Jesus for his sacrifice.